If not, please do so. But Matthew, we got three uh, great stories, intriguing stories to look at this morning. They're all tied closely to the theme of newness that that Matt walked us through uh, last week with the new wine in old wineskins theme. And you can see that in verse 18 of our text while he was saying these things to them. So this is, these are stories about newness, the newness that Jesus brings, hence the, the title that I've given this, Out with the Old and In with the New. The first story is a sandwich story, two stories sandwiched together. I'll talk about that in a minute. And, uh, and we're going to spend most of our time on that one, so don't panic if, uh, if I go a while and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we have two stories left to go. The other two are very important, but they're quickly unpacked. Uh, the second story is Jesus bringing a new definition to an old term of the son of David. And then the last story of the man who is deaf and mute um, and demon-possessed is uh, Jesus demanding new responses to what he does and says. So let's look at the first uh, story then together, that Jesus takes the old away. There is a, a sandwich shop in Spokane called Domini, Domini Sandwich Shop, a good Italian family and they make sandwiches there. I used to love to go there because you couldn't take the whole sandwich in one bite. There was so much meat in the middle. And it's a, it's a shop that's special to us. My son Graham and his wife Callie, that was their first date. So when they go back to Spokane, they like to go to Domini. And this is a sandwich. We need to think about that. A sandwich that has a top piece of bread, and then the meat of the sandwich, and then the bottom piece of bread. So you can see in the first two stories, we start off with the top slice of bread, which is the ruler who we know from Matthew, and, I mean, some from Mark and Luke, is named Jairus. And that story is started. And then Matthew and Mark and Luke, oh, they all have this same sandwich, shoves a story right in the middle of the woman with the discharge of blood. And it was only after that story then that we come back to the bottom slice of bread and we have the completion of the story of the ruler and his daughter. You follow me there? And the way that the gospel, the synoptic, the three same view writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use these stories, the middle story is the story that gives you the interpretive method for the slices of bread story. So it's understanding the woman with the issue of blood that we can understand the story of the daughter who has just died. And so the middle story is the interpretive key to the sandwich. This is a phenomenon that, that Mark especially uses so much that in biblical studies the term Mark and sandwich is actually a thing. Um, it was coined, I, I believe, by uh, James Edwards, who was from Spokane, uh, when he wrote his commentary on it. So I'll be using a few details. Matthew's account is a full third shorter than Mark's and Luke's. And so there's a lot of detail to this story that Matthew does not include because of his thrust of Jesus' authority and the newness that he brings. But I'm going to borrow from the, uh, from the other 
Gospels, if that's okay with you. And if it's not, just raise your hand. And, um, so let's, uh, let's start in on this one. While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Uh, for some, if, if you read some commentators on this, some of them will say that perhaps Jairus' faith was not as robust as the centurion's in chapter 8, where he just said to Jesus, just, just come and touch her. I mean, just say the word. That's what he says. Just come and say the word, and my servant will be healed. And they're saying, well, Jairus says, come and lay your hands on her. But I, I think that there's a, something else going on here we, we learn from the others that Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He would have been the man who administrated the synagogue, who found and contracted the rabbis to come, who took care of the school and made sure that everything was functioning, that the building was taken care of. His life was wrapped around the Torah, the law. And when he says these things to Jesus, he's asking him directly and specifically to transgress the law of Moses. He's a desperate man. He would have been a man of some means and some standing in the community. And so he would have known what he was doing when he said to Jesus, come and lay hands on her. We don't know what his relationship was to Jesus. We can't assume that it was oppositional before this, although... As we know, and we'll see at the very end, Jesus did have a bit of a conflict going with some of the Jewish leaders. But we do know that he was desperate. The other Gospels, are in their little longer, say this, this situation actually is a little more drawn out. And when Jairus first approached Jesus, his daughter was on the brink of death. And as they were walking, she died. Now you have to remember, this is in Capernaum. And so when we're talking about Jesus walking from wherever he was to Jairus' house, we're talking about maybe from here to Bridge Street. We're not talking about a long distance. So it's a very short thing, but Matthew wants us, just cuts right to the chase. She's died. Come and lay your hands on her. Well, what he's asking Jesus to do is to transgress the ritual purity laws. And the ritual purity laws... Um, kind of succinctly put, are, are a bulk of laws in the Old Testament, mostly in Leviticus, although there's, there's some spread all over the place. Actually, these are in numbers, as we'll see in a moment. But they were designed to show the Israelites two things. One, that there was a principle of sin and death inside of them. It happened at the fall. It's why Adam and Eve had to leave God's presence. And that principle could not be in harmony with God. It couldn't be in communion with God. And since Christ had not come yet, in God's patience and his um, condescending, he allowed that if they could maintain an exterior that was clean, they could at least be in the camp, in his presence. They could come to the tabernacle, even though they couldn't enter into where he was, they could at least have a relationship with him. And so they had to stay clean. So if you think, and it was kind of silly, but if you think of an M&M, that's a great example of the ritual purity system. As long as that hard shell is intact, 
The principle of sin and death inside is shielded away from God. Anytime anything comes out, uh, some type of bodily fluid, a woman giving birth and the blood there, uh, skin diseases that come to the surface, anytime something from the inside comes out, they're unclean. And they have to leave God's people and presence. In the Old Testament, it meant leaving the camp. They were not allowed to come to the tabernacle or the temple until that problem was resolved. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says the blood of sin, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sin. Can't take it away. It can only cover it. So that's the ritual purity system. And you weren't allowed to touch when you were contagious. When something, when something came out, you weren't allowed to touch somebody or you would pass it along to them. So contagion flowed from one to the next because we all suffer from this condition. Does that make sense? So let's think then about what Jairus is asking. Come and touch my dead daughter. Um, this is his unexpected request that he gives to Jesus. And here is in Numbers 19. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. That's what he was asking Jesus, and he knew it. And here's just a few verses later. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Now remember, this is back in Moses' time, so everybody lived in tents. But, so it would, be house, it would include houses now in Jesus' time. Anyone who comes into the house and anyone who is in the house will be unclean seven days. This is an extraordinary thing. Here is the ruler of the synagogue coming to Jesus and saying, I would like you to ignore and transgress the very laws that my life are built on because of my daughter. It's a desperate move. But it is a move that is implicitly and yet unmistakably saying to Jesus, you are bringing something new to the table. You have a power. You have a capability that the old covenant does not have. And I have to turn my back on that if I want to receive what you have to give. Since chapter 5 in this book, this is the message that Jesus has been proclaiming. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you need a righteousness greater than that can be given if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. I am the person who has come, who can heal, who can calm storms, who can cast out demons. And Jairus sees that. I don't know what the aftermath of this was, of Jairus saying this to Jesus and having him into his house, but I don't think he cared much, really, because he was a desperate man, and he knew that Jesus could address that desperation. And I don't think the pathos of this situation can be ignored either. This is a dad, a father, in the absolute nadir of grief. He had just lost his daughter. What a hush must have come over the crowd. Not just because of the tragedy, but because of the ruler coming and kneeling, falling down in front of this peasant rabbi and saying, you can address this. It's a remarkable thing. And Jesus liked what he heard. So he rose and he followed him along with his disciples and went to address this girl's situation. 
And then we have the middle of this, of this sandwich, don't we? As they're going to uh, uh, Jairus' house, they are interrupted by another figure. And this one is the polar opposite of Jairus. She is not a person of standing. She is of the lower classes of the Galileans. She's unclean. She's a woman. She's an outcast. And she's hopeless. This woman is to be correlated and understood in terms of the daughter. In fact, Jesus calls her daughter in case we haven't gotten that we are supposed to see the daughter in her. She suffered for 12 years. We know from Mark and Luke that the girl who died was 12 years old. They were both women. They were both unclean. They were both at the end of their ropes. They were both daughters. They were both beyond medical care. This woman lived an unbelievably lonely life. It's a touchy subject, but menstrual blood is a very large topic in the Bible. Uh, it's intertwined with life and death themes and redemption. And it is in understanding this that we can understand how Jesus solves death. Uh, this woman would probably, well, she, she may not ever have been divorced if this problem arose before she was of marriage uh, right at puberty. Or if she was married, she probably had been divorced because she could not literally be touched. To touch was to become unclean. She would not have been allowed to cook for her family because what she touched would have been unclean. And so she led a lonely um, exilic life, not able to go to the tabernacle, or, well, the temple at that time. And in desperation, in her desperation, she sees that Jesus may be the solution to her problem. Now again, commentators have, have suggested that perhaps her faith is superstitious. If I can only just touch the fringe of his garment, it says, I'll be made well. She'd spent all of her money, the other writers tell us. She was destitute. Uh, the Mishnah, which is a collection of Israel's oral laws, and then the Talmud, which is commentary on the Mishnah, both have sections about the women with menstrual uh, issues and some of the cures that they suggest are laughable. They're more like ones to cure hiccups, coming up and scaring somebody and things like that. She spent everything that she had. She had heard of Jesus, Mark tells us. And so she knew from the story of the leper and from stories of others that when Jesus touches ritual purity, he becomes unclean in a manner of speaking, but he takes it away. That when he touches somebody he takes it in fact look at verse 18 verse uh, 17 of chapter 8 this is talking about Jesus's touch this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah he took our illnesses that's Matthew's translation he wants us to understand Jesus takes it and he bears it he bears it to the cross 
And this woman is anxious to touch him, not because she's superstitious, but because she knows if she touches him, she won't just infect him, he will take it from her. Nobody else can do that. If she touched me, I would just become unclean. Those are the rules. And those are the rules written by a guy named, hmm, oh yeah, Jesus. Did Jesus become unclean? Kind of. He took them and he bore them. Can the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God in human form, become unclean and displeasing to God because a woman who's ill touches him? I don't think so. I don't think he can actually become unclean. But what he can do is he can take it. And that's what he does. She comes up and she touches his garment. And the other writers tell us that immediately her blood flow stopped and his started. He knew that, blood, that power had flowed out of him because he took that illness. He traded places and he took that disease. For the first time in 12 years... She was well. Jesus turns around and he says, Daughter, again, so that we understand that we're learning how to interpret this bigger story of Jairus and his daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, that's an interesting word in Greek. It's sozo, and it's many times in, uh, translated save. It can mean save and healed. This woman, in recognizing the newness that Jesus brings, the new healing, the new power, the new ability to overcome this interior sin and death, was made well and saved. And I'll bet everything that from that day on, every chance she had, she told the story of the day that she touched Jesus. And a very interesting little note. The fringe of his garment translates a word that means the tassels on his rope or on his shawl. And those tassels are there of another passage out of Numbers, uh, specifically to remind the Jews that they were to obey the laws of the Old Covenant. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that she touches in disobeying the laws of the Old, te- of the old Covenant because Jesus brings something new is the thing that reminds her. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? And it's beautiful. Jesus brings something new. Well, that's the perspective by which we come back then to the, to the bottom slice of bread for this all-important question of how does Jesus defeat death? So in verse 23, Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now those uh, Jewish pieces of literature that I mentioned, the Mishnah and the Talmud say that even the poorest family is supposed to have two whalers and a flute player at a, at a funeral to make a, a weeping and, and mourning commotion. Paid people, and that's how they made their living. And Jesus comes, he says, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now part of me wants to cut these people a little bit of a break because they knew that she was dead. I mean, they weren't fools. She's not sleeping, she's dead. But the other part of me wants to go, this is not a good reaction because Capernaum, as I said, is not big. And Jesus has done a few miracles. And I'm not sure that it's wise to just go, yeah, you're, you're a fool when you've got the woman he just healed is probably standing next to him. 
It's a bad reaction, a faithless one. And that faithlessness is to be contrasted with the faith of this, of this ruler and this woman. The crowd was then put outside. And against, against Numbers 19, Jesus went in. And against Numbers 19, He took her by the hand. And the girl arose. The touch of Jesus brought her back to life. How did he do that? He took it. He took that death. He took that sin and he bore it to the cross. Interestingly, this word, this word arose is not the normal one for resurrection. It's one that is used, and in Mark, it's a beautiful thing. He says, the girl arose. And then, guess what the angel says to the women when they come looking for Jesus? Why are you here? He is arisen. It's the same word. His death takes our death and puts it to death. It's the great John Owen's book, isn't it? The death of death and the death of Christ. He takes our death and he bears it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, there is no more sublime truth that we can say than that. That the incarnate Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, came here Himself to become one of us and to die so that He might take away our slavery to death and make us new creations, the very children of God sharing His life. That's what this story is telling us. He takes our death. You know who wrestled most with the implications of this? It was the Apostle Paul. If you read through his writings, you will hear again and again and again how he talks about death and what it means. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about it. That we have been buried with or baptized with Christ into His death and raised to His life. And we are no longer subject to the principle of sin and death. We have been freed from it. Don't consider yourselves a slave from it. But you have been given new life. He's been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, He lives. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith and the Son of God. That's Galatians. But He's talking about the same thing. He's wrestling with this idea. How does Jesus take our death and kill it with His death so that we can be made new? But what's the real question behind it the real question for Paul there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death he has taken it he has made us free he has made us new and Paul's question is why do I still struggle with sin why when I am a new creation do I still do the things that I don't want to do and so even though we have been made new, we can't go too far ahead of the game. We're still awaiting the ultimate newness that's going to come when Jesus comes back and returns. It is a beautiful story of Jesus and how He defeats our death. He takes it and He gives us His life and He bears it to the cross. And these two women in their impurities and their outcastness are the proof and the assurance that we will rise again as well. So let's look at the next uh, two stories very briefly. 
as Jesus passed on from there, so he's left Jairus' house, and, and who knows who's following him, because this is a pretty spectacular thing, and everybody's going to know about it, whether he wants them to or not. Two blind men are following him, and they cry aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. This is verse 27. And apparently Jesus doesn't answer them, and he doesn't even stop. He just keeps going. And when, they answered, and when they entered the house, then he deals with it. Now, there's a reason for this. The son of David is a very loaded term. Uh, the, this time uh, that Jesus lived in, it was a time where there was heightened messianic expectations. And the Messiah for them, the old definition of Messiah, was militaristic. He was somebody who was going to come, and he was going to bring Jewish ascendancy. He was going to bring Gentile subservience. He was going to take the Romans and kick them right out. It was going to be conquest and glory for Israel, and it was going to be judgment and revenge for the Gentiles, particularly the Romans. That's what it meant. Jesus wanted to know what these guys meant. And so when they're in the house, he says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I'm the son of David and I can do this? That this is about me, Jesus. Do they have that faith? Or maybe put it this way, can these blind men actually see? And they say, yes, we can. And Jesus says, then see. Now, the words there, according to your faith, he's not, he's not saying, because of the measure of your faith, I'll give you the measure. No, he's just saying, because you understand that I can do this, do it. You can see. And he touches them, and they can see. This is a new definition of the Son of David, isn't it? This is not a Son of David who is bringing militaristic conquest. This is the Son of David who is giving them exactly what they asked for, mercy. The Son of David who shows mercy to his people, who takes their sins and their illnesses, who heals them, who bears their sins to the cross. This is the son of David who is merciful, not militaristic. That's why he doesn't want them to go broadcasting this. The word there, sternly worn, is almost violent. It's not him saying, hey, don't tell anybody. He's saying, don't tell anybody. Because everyone in Capernaum and Galilee is going to interpret him in terms of the old son of David. And that's not who he is. That's not what he came to do. And actually, as we read into the story, we're going to find out that this is the very thing that's going to end up getting him crucified. His claims will be misinterpreted. But it's not time yet, is it? And so Jesus brings a new definition to this powerful term of son of David. And then the action keeps flowing. As they were going on from there, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Now, in Greek, this word usually means a mute and deaf person together. The maladies usually went together with this Greek term. So you have someone who can't hear, who can't speak, and is demon-oppressed. That's a pretty bad triumvirate, isn't it? This story is unlike the other two, isn't it? There's no dialogue. There's no faith. Somebody brought Jesus, and he heals him and casts out the demon. 
So what's the point? Well, the point is, I think, that I'm way behind on my slides. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, new definition. Oh, this, is, this one was important. This is the, the Isaiah's definition. Now, we're going to hear this again in the upcoming passages. This is Isaiah saying who the son of David is going to be, that he's going to be this kind of person who, who heals and takes care of his people. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness. That's, what's, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Blindness and, and the mute and, and people being healed. This is what the Son of David came to do. To heal, to show mercy, and most importantly, as we've seen, to take our enslavement to death and sin away. And so this man comes to them in this light and it requires a new response to this. Do they respond to the old son of David, the old Torah, the old way, or are they going to respond to the new? That's, that's the point of this, is the responses to Jesus' exorcism of this demon. The crowds marvel. Never was anything seen like this. It's new. This is new. No, we have never seen anything like this. And... and and what, and what do you, what do you think about it? There's no commitment. And we'll see again in the coming chapters. The crowds love the show, but they're never willing to commit. And at the very end, they'll turn against him. And then there's the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, "He casts out demon by the prince of demons." That's pretty bad. The Pharisees deny him the newness and the power and his claims, and and they end up being blind themselves. They end up being unable to hear his words. They end up being unable to speak truth. And in chapter 23, Jesus is going to say, You yourselves are children of hell. You're devilish. This phrase of the Pharisees, this response to Jesus shows complete opposition to him you have the responses of faith that Jesus is who he says he is that he can do what he says he can do and that even more he can take away things that we never imagined could be taken away our very bondage to sin and death you have the crowds who mock him or who marvel at him but refuse to make a commitment and you have the Pharisees who stand in opposition to him Which one are we? Which one are you? Perhaps we need, you need the touch of Jesus for life itself, coming to Him and, and, and realizing that His atonement, His death for us, that is the forgiveness of sins, is the taking away of our sin. Or maybe like the woman, you need to be the one who instigates the touch who goes to Jesus and finds the healing and the restoration that is so important. Matt prayed earlier about the discouragement and the struggles, and this this woman is a great example of coming to Jesus and touching for His healing restoration. Years ago, I I was talking to an Anglican bishop, and he was telling me about one of his uh, parish priests 
who was really struggling, and, and struggling spiritually, not just um, in life and all that it entails. And what this bishop did was immediately put him on a leave of absence, because bishops have that kind of authority. And he said, for the next three months, you are to go and you are to read nothing but the Gospels. And you sit at the feet of the cross, through the images, through the beauty of these four Gospels, and you gaze upon Jesus and let him restore your soul. That is just as profound a touch that Jesus can bring. The touch of healing from sin and death itself, the touch of restoration and being made new, taking away the fear and the doubt. But don't, don't respond with a non-committal. Because in the end, they're against him too. It probably goes without saying, don't respond like the Pharisees. Don't do that. Jesus takes away sin and death. Jesus takes away the discouragement, the troubles, the alienation, the loneliness, the desperation. Jesus gives life. I would really suggest that the power of these stories is that if you ponder them this week and think about them and meditate on these, that you're going to be blessed because we are caught up in these stories in the most sublime truths of the Bible. And so please take the time as you travel, as you have free moments, to think about the two women, to think about the blind men, and to let these simple stories open up in their profundity to you. And may the Lord bless you as you realize the truths that we are to be encouraged through the Gospel of Matthew. So let's do that now for a few minutes. Let's respond by meditating on these beautiful stories and what the Spirit has to teach us through them before we end with our final story, our songs.